Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, hello, happy new year and welcome to the 2018 version of the Indie Football Podcast. I'm Ed Malian. Your host, as always, uh, this week's podcast sponsored by Lemsip. Not officially, uh, just because we wouldn't be doing it without their interference today. Um, of course, if you do want to sponsor the podcast, please do get in touch. Um, sponsorship at independent.co.uk, I guess, is probably the email address. Um, I'm not alone today. I am accompanied by uh, two of my finest, three of my finest, if you include producer Matt Murphy, just sat over there. I've got uh, Jack Pitbrook to my left. Jack, say hello. Hello. And Lawrence Osler over in the corner. Say hello. Hi. So uh, I'm sure you've all enjoyed your holidays. Uh, we have been covering the football for you nonstop. So we haven't had one yet. And uh, and thus, if you hear any grumpy people in the room, that might explain why. So since we last did a podcast, Jack, which I believe it was the 18th of December, uh, there have been something like 46 Premier League games. Uh, so what I did was I made a custom league table since the last podcast. Uh, and some teams have played four games, some teams have played three games, and a couple of teams have played just two. Uh, but looking at that league table, we can work out who has had the best festive period and who has had the worst festive period. And we can discuss individual games and moments from all of those teams. So without further ado, let's start at the top. And riding high is Liverpool, who have taken 10 points from their four games. Three wins and a draw for, for Klopp. Um, it's an interesting one because their attack really does look very good. They've obviously secured the Virgil van Dijk signing since we, since we last spoke. So the outlook for Liverpool in 2018 looks a bit more positive. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I, I, was, at, I was at the game at Arsenal where they drew three all despite dominating about 85 minutes of the match, which was a game which, for me, kind of sums up both Liverpool's strengths and weaknesses. But the fact is that since then, they've been more consistent. Their win at Burnley the other day you know, was certainly not one of their most explosive performances of the season, not least because they didn't have Coutinho or Salah playing. Uh, and yet Klopp was delighted afterwards, said that you know, you've got to be able to win dirty, or what he called winning not on the sunny days. And the fact is they're now, what, I think, 13 unbeaten in the Premier League, 16 unbeaten in all competitions. Finding that consistency, which, is a, which they've lacked so far, and if they stick with Carrius in goal, and if Van Dijk comes in and does well at centre-back, then you think they could actually be closer to the complete package for the second half of the season. Well, if, if you assume that the title was gone, which I think everyone... We've said it probably on the last five podcasts, so we can't really deviate from that now. However, Liverpool have just got to finish top four now, right? So they've just got to be in the top four, get the Champions League, you know, carry on building. They're going to have Naby Keita next season. They're going to have Virgil van Dijk. They're probably not going to have Coutinho, but, you know, they'll, they'll change things around. They're currently six points clear of Arsenal, who've got a game in hand. They are seven points clear of Tottenham, who've got two games in hand. So they've got to try and build up a buffer, but you're right, they are playing well. Um, I forgot that that Liverpool-Arsenal game was like one of the first of the festive period, really. Um, Lawrence, you saw that one, didn't you? I saw, yes, I did, yeah. Yes, yeah. So that game itself, probably one of the games of the year, right at the end. Um, but do we think Virgil van Dijk is going to be enough to 
be able to fix that Liverpool defence, which at times just completely melts. Yeah, it does. And it's not going to stop melting just because of Virgil van Dijk, I don't think. I think they've had experiences like this before. With, I mean, Lovren was the example, wasn't it, where he came from quite a solid Southampton defence, um, came into the Liverpool side and wasn't able to replicate that form directly. I think a lot of it comes down to the way they play and Virgil van Dijk isn't going to change the way they play. He's still going to be exposed on the counter-attack. He's still going to have situations where he's not got much midfield protection in front of him. So I think it's going to be a harder challenge for him and he's obviously going up a level in terms of what's expected of him and the pressures on him. Um, but it's, it's a really good signing. He's a really good defender. I think it will improve them. And like you say, with Naby Keita joining in the summer, you can see where this squad is progressing towards. And it, it feels like if they can secure that top four position, they're in a really good place to then spring on another level next season. Would you two, in one word, would you have rather had the £70 million defender that is Virgil van Dijk mm. or like a £40 million goalkeeper and a nice £30 million centre-back? Personally, I don't, haven't seen enough of Loris Karius to know if he's the finished article, to know if he's good enough is he good enough to be a Premier League winning I think we've seen enough to know that he's not the finished article now yeah but I yeah certainly people that know more about German football than me have said that he could become the number one he's good enough but for me I think as much of uh, a lot of the issues with their defense seem to come from communication and not having a goalkeeper that instills confidence like and you can see it I, I remember um, watching a couple of years ago as my team changed goalkeeper and basically the new goalkeeper comes in and there's no confidence instilled in the defence and everything falls apart. Everything falls apart in terms of the players don't want to pass it backwards. They, you know, they don't trust the ball going over their heads and stuff. So I just feel like if they do invest in a good goalkeeper that it will help Liverpool in more ways than you'd imagine. Yeah, yeah I mean, the difference between Liverpool's goalkeepers and the goalkeepers of the other teams who are in the, the big six is amazing. Like, I mean, even the gap between Czech and Mignolet and Carriers is huge. And the gap between Czech and Courtois, Edison, De Gea and Loris is huge. So that, I mean, that is the gap they have to make up. But the interesting thing is that I know that in the summer, the, you know, there were some people at Liverpool who were suggesting, you know, we should probably go and buy a new keeper here. And Klopp said, now, nah, you know what, goalkeepers aren't so important. If we just focus on getting the outfield players right, then then the team will be fine. And that that has very much been his view. Is that right? That's interesting. That goalkeepers are less important than the outfield positions. And the the funny thing is with Klopp, I mean, I remember after the Arsenal game, he was talking about this and he was insisting that the problem was not his tactics. He said he's not not a a sort of gung-ho manager. He doesn't leave the team exposed. And that it's individual errors, which can be ultimately be put down to bad luck, basically. And so from his perspective... If you go and buy a world-class centre-back, he's going to make fewer individual errors than a than a non-world-class centre-back. And ideally, from Liverpool's perspective, Van, Van Dijk will be better than Lovren. Though what, what's funny is that that logic doesn't quite extend to goalkeepers, mm. where he doesn't feel like spending money can improve the problem. But yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that Van Dijk is good enough to handle the burden of playing for Liverpool, because it is a difficult job. Uh, and I do think he will improve the team. Interesting little snippet on Van Dijk. Uh, when... Johnny Lou went down to interview Mauricio Pellegrino for us. Um, there was a, a sheet stuck up on the, the board inside the changing rooms where uh, it had uh, sprint times and it was the, the fastest player in the squad was indeed Virgil van Dijk, not Shane Long or anyone that you might expect to be, you know, like Redmond or, or Dusan Talic. It was Virgil van Dijk. So 
I, kind of with the question I asked, I think that if you believe, and I think Klopp was so obsessed with the Van Dijk thing, you know, he's the guy that convinced him, he's the guy that convinced the club that that's who they need to buy. If that's how sure you are and that's the guy you want, then fine, go ahead and do it. But for me, I think a goalkeeper would have been impactful. But anyway, Liverpool, top of the festive table, fourth in the real table, and they're just behind Chelsea, who are ahead of, uh, sorry, Chelsea are in second in the festive table. Them and Manchester City both got seven points from their three games. Jack, you saw Chelsea on Boxing Day. Yes, what do you make of them? Um, they were fine. I mean, they were just, they did a very professional job. Uh, Feels like a lost season again for them. Like, yeah, if they're going to be t- second or third, it's like what else is there? What else is there to say about Chelsea unless they do something in the cups? I know that you know it. It felt like quite a low key game. Morata mm. uh, and Marcus Alonso both scored headers. Uh, there was never real. I never thought they were going to screw it up. Uh, I never thought that Brighton were going to get anything out of the game. Um, and then you know their next game against or when they played Stoke City a few days later at home. It was another similarly professional performance. I, th- I agree. I think Chelsea are clearly they're not going to have a Mourinho season, as Conte hilariously calls it. They will almost certainly finish second or third. They could certainly win the Champions League. Like I mm-hmm. think that they could. I think on their day, they can beat anyone. They've got. I mean, Eden Hazard remains one of the best players in Europe, particularly when it comes to doing things by himself in a big game. Um, but until that point, until we get to the Barcelona games or an FA Cup semi-final or whatever, it does feel like they are slightly going through the motions a bit. Chelsea and Man City, the two teams, have got seven points from their three games. Uh, the only two teams not to concede a goal over the festive period as well. Um, although, you've got to say Man City should have done, and they came very close to in the final minutes at Selhurst Park. Y- yeah, I mean, Crystal Palace gave City... Probably, I mean, it was it was the first time that City haven't won in the league since a one-all draw with Everton back in August. Well, they should have lost their unbeaten record. I don't think is yeah so, as well as they played. Andros Townsend. I mean, you talk about the penalty in the last minute, but Andros Townsend's chance on like seventy-two, yeah. Yeah, where he side foots it over, and it's like wow. I mean, I don't even know. I think Roy Hodgson did a great job. Um, I think that is the sort of game that he's really good at. Um. Because against Arsenal, I thought they were a bit too tame, a bit too passive. And he kind of got at Man City a little bit more. Um, and obviously Zaha does his thing. And Andros Townsend was good, I thought. Um, it was a really good mixture of like defending deep and in numbers when they had to, but also being able to play on the break and put on pressure at the right times. So I, was, I, th- I, was I thought really if Sterling had played 90 minutes, Man City probably would have won. I don't know. I thought that Sterling was really cautious when he came on. Because he came on, what, about halfway through the second half? Mm-hmm. But he never once took on Van Aanholt. He had a, quite a few chances to. Never once ran past him. And then I remember there was a moment with about five minutes left where Kyle Walker took on Van Aanholt and ran down the outside. And I was thinking, well, hold on a second. Why couldn't Sterling have done that when he's had so many chances to? I thought for the first time in a while, I thought City looked really tired. Mm. I thought that Sterling, when he came on, didn't do much. Sane was massively off the pace. And like Sane hasn't been playing well for a while. Well, Palace, Palace played the two fastest fullbacks they have in the squad, which I think was obviously a deliberate tactic. Fosu Mensa, who he was, was man of the match, uh, you know, obviously on loan from Man United. Um, he's been up and down, really. and He was a De Boer signing, so it's an awkward situation for him. Yaro Riedewald, who's another De Boer signing, has been missing. That was his first start since the opening day, I think. Um, did quite well in defensive midfield, I thought. And, and Van Arnholt, who is a player I like as a footballer, I think he's a good footballer. I think defensively he's not that sound sometimes, which is why Hodgson prefers Schlupp. But I thought they both did well because 
really the, the issue with Man City is if one of these tricky winger guys, if they cut inside and they're running at James Tompkins instead of Fossu Mensah, then you're in trouble. And they managed to protect that from happening, which is the absolute key to playing against a team which is so dangerous at dribbling with the ball. Yeah, I thought City really missed David Silva as well. Yeah. I think sometimes, I mean, David Silva is obviously brilliant, but he does slow City down sometimes. And therefore, if you're if they're playing a more direct style, like for example, when they won at when they won at top sorry, against Tottenham at City a few weeks ago, you don't really need him as much when you've got Gundogan and De Bruyne like pinging passes forward really quickly. Mm-hmm. But in a game like that where you're playing against a team who've set up to defend their own penalty area in numbers, you need someone who can play the clever pass and can, you know, and can kind of tease out a really small gap between the fullbacks to th- between a fullback and centre back to thread the ball between. That kind of thing. Um and they didn't have that at all because there was no David Silver. And I thought that I mean Gundogan and De Bruyne got kicked out of the game a bit. Gundogan is good carrying the ball, but the passing isn't quite as good as David Silva. And actually, I was a little bit disappointed with Bernardo Silva because they played him up on up on the right. Well, he kind of needs to step three. in for David Silva now, right? Yeah, but he was. They had him in that kind of a, in that kind of attacking role, uh, like out on the wide of the front three. But he wasn't quite quick enough to get in behind, and because Palace were defending deep, he wasn't. There wasn't really space for him to get into. And I think it was kind of inevitable that he would move into midfield later on in the game. But I feel like he couldn't really he couldn't really do the, either the first job he had to do, that kind of Raheem Sterling job, mm-hmm. or the sort of David Silva job in midfield later in the game. I think he doesn't do that thing that Silva does where that those little clever underlaps where he's kind of gets in those really tight defences, he gets in between centre back and full back, gets to the byline and plays those little cutbacks. Haven't seen Bernardo Silva do that kind of role maybe it's a, it's a testing period player. for him because we don't know how long David Silva is going to be away from the game uh, for personal reasons and, and Bernardo Silva would be the natural guy to step in so we just need to see some performances uh, from him producer Matt you were there at Sellers Park any other observations I think one thing that Palace deserve more credit for is they they chased the game they had uh, Benteke chasing the ball chasing every opportunity Kabai and Zaha as well we're all pressing high up the field and sitting deep and isolating City in the right areas just outside um, the box, just where De Bruyne plays those important passes. They were forcing him to make mistakes, which you rarely see from De Bruyne. And he was he was really off his game. And I think definitely deserve more credit for that. Uh, another observation I'd have was um, Edison and Hennessy in goal. It meant every goal kick was going about 90 yards. It was absurd. Edison, for me, the best goalkeeper in the Premier League at the moment. I think, I mean, obviously De Gea has his own skill set and whatever, but what Edison has brought to Man City compared to last year when they were kind of a quivering wreck uh, at the back is, is kind of that point I was making about confidence. You know, they, you can see that they actually trust the guy mm-hmm. and his short passing and long passing is excellent. Um, we'll work for the next... Newcastle also have seven points over the festive period, but they played a game more than Chelsea and Man City. Um, it means that Rafa has pulled them out of that relegation mire a little bit. They're up in 13th place now. Obviously, it's not that far away from relegation, only four points ahead of... Uh, that mark but but they've had a good period um, Tottenham have only played two games which is uh, part of the weirdness of this this festive schedule they played two but they won two scored eight conceded two uh, Man United uh, four games played uh, sorry they've won one drawn three not lost any so they're, they're undefeated over the festive period but they've taken just six points from four games what do we make of United's current situation I think it's you can't really overestimate how important that second half performance was at Goodison. I think cause in the first half, it didn't look like they were going to get anything out of the game. And at that point, it would have been, what, five games without a win yeah, and serious yeah. questions. But then to to turn it on like that, it was the first time we've had in weeks, really, that you've had a sense that what Mourinho is trying to do there 
might work. Maybe not to the point of winning the title this year, but it's not kind of... They're not completely hopeless. Also, he got probably the best performance of the season out of his best player, Paul Pogba. Yep. Um, who again, you know, again, you cannot overstate how important Pogba is to that team. He allow when you've got someone who's that technically good and that athletic, you can play. I mean, you can defend as deep as you want because he's so good on the break. This goes back to the Euros, um, and even at Juventus, Pogba's position is always, best position has always been on on the left of a midfield three. And it was weird because they tried to play him on the right of the midfield three, uh, France in the Euros, and it didn't really work. And everyone was saying, kind of, you know, at Juve, he plays on the left of that, that triangle, we'll just put him there, and he'll play better. And he did. And this is what happened this week as well. And Mark Critchley, 2018 Independent Sport, uh, 2017 Independent Sport Man of the Year, wrote this morning that Pogba's best position for United will be if they play a three mm-hmm. and stick him there. But Mourinho always wants to play the two holding guys in a number 10 which is fine, but then you have two holding guys and Lingard where you could have a more solid three triangle maybe with Pogba on the left of it. I, th- I think the difference with France was they had to shoehorn in Griezmann and Pogba and it didn't quite work and you ended up changing yeah, yeah, the formation. I see that. But, but United don't have that problem. Like we don't. There's not a, a clear, obvious number 10 that needs to... But surely you build the team around Pogba exactly. more than anyone else. Yeah, I think so. And I think... Frank Lampard always used to say his best form for Chelsea came when he played on the left side of a three where he knew that Makaleli would sit, Essien would, would cover if mm-hmm. he went on, you know, got lost out of position. And you can see totally how Pogba would thrive in that situation as well. And, and it, as, as there isn't that obvious number 10, surely now is the time to build the team around the best player in the team. That's how I feel. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with that. I, I just don't think... I don't know. I don't think Jose's one. I don't think he likes changing things um, that much. I think you know he gets very embedded in ideas. Um, there are some more games tonight and tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that. So we might be saying some stuff that's going to be out of date very soon. But Arsenal uh, don't play tonight. They've got just one win from their three games over the the festive period, five points. Brighton have played four and got five points. And Bournemouth, who played against Brighton have uh, also got five points from their four games. Any particular points you'd like to make about Arsenal, Brighton or Bournemouth? Um, I was at Arsenal. I was at Arsenal's game at Crystal Palace. And, and you saw Arsenal-Liverpool as well. Yeah. yeah. And the, the Palace game was the first time, I think, all season that we've really seen the best of Alexis Sanchez. I mean, it only lasted for four minutes, but that's all he needed. He was brilliant. Where he... Uh, he scored one goal completely out of the blue and then a second one running onto a Jack Wilshire pass, which he took he took perfectly. Um, and yeah, I mean, the big take home from that game was this issue between Sanchez and his teammates, which I think has been bubbling under for a while. But the fact is that if he can continue to play like that, then they will probably be okay. If he does go, though, they're going to have to reproduce, they're going to have to replace his kind of productivity from elsewhere in the team. Do we think with Gabby Jesus now being out, that Manchester City might just push the button on Sanchez. Yeah, you'd have to say it's likely. I mean, Miguel did that story yesterday, I think, saying that City will be having meetings this week to decide whether or not to sign Sanchez. I'm sure if they want to do it, they'll get him. You know, clearly Sanchez has been wanting to go to City for a long time. Arsenal certainly would not turn down the money if City were to offer the £30 or so. So it's really really up to City whether or not the, the expense is worth the disruption. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And I mean, there were whispers of something afoot to Arsenal today as well, which uh, would be interesting if it does happen, just because, you know, Man City came very close to losing that unbeaten record and everything. But... Ultimately, I think this is a team that's got to be looking like we could win the Champions League this year. And if we want to win the Champions League, they might need to bring in someone like Alexis Sanchez. I think, yeah, yeah, I think it's true. I, th- I think with Arsenal, this game against Chelsea coming up this week now seems massive. Um, there's a chance that they could be a little bit, cut adrift maybe a bit too strong, but they, they could be, with Tottenham playing two games in, I think, 48 hours, they could pick up six points and suddenly Arsenal could be five or six points away and, and feeling like they're actually a bit of a gap there to the top four. Um, Chelsea, going back to Chelsea here, they've had quite a nice run in this Christmas period. They really had it easy. Stoke played a second 11 against them at Stamford Bridge, 1-5-0. Yeah, yeah. They've had an extra day and a half to prepare for this game against Arsenal, which, you know, in the context of a normal week wouldn't really matter, but in the context of playing so many games in such a short period of time could make a difference. It feels like Arsenal really can't afford, especially after drawing with West Brom, to, to lose this game um, so yeah I think with the Sanchez thing boiling over as well it kind of feels like it's a really critical month for Arsenal we head into the bottom half of the festive table there are three teams one who aren't that interesting uh, for our purposes here Leicester they've got four points from four games but then we have Stoke who've got four from four and Swansea who've got th- uh, four from three Stoke first um, they waved the white flag against Chelsea Um they lost at home to Newcastle in the next game, which is a terrible look. Yeah. Their 2017 was awful. The way they finished last season was dreadful, under the radar, because there are so many other stories going on. But Hughes has had a bad year there. Um, the way we understand it, they are considering alternatives, but there's no one obvious that they could get in to replace him now. Mm. Um, what do we make of what's going on there? You know, Is it time for a change at Stoke, or, or do we think that this is just one where they're going to have to let him ride it out? We talked about this just before Christmas, I think, mm-hmm. didn't we? And it felt like things were on the slide. This Newcastle game felt like the turning point. I think. So I didn't. I didn't see it. Were they? They, they were. They, were, they didn't play very well. And uh-huh. Newcastle had some really good chances. Christian Atsu had a couple of really good chances in the first half, and they they could have perhaps won by more. Um, Stoke certainly didn't deserve to get anything from the game. Hosselu scored the winning goal. It felt. I think it was Hosselu. It felt like such an important. That Perez goal just felt like a really important moment. Hughes stormed out of the press conference afterwards, uh, being confronted on his decision mm-hmm. to rest players at Chelsea. And but yeah. with reason, though. I mean, you, you've got to face up to that questioning if you're going to go and if you're going to make the big play. And, and you know, people said that the, the performance against Chelsea was a white flag. They just completely yeah. didn't look like a team who were trying. You have to get something from the Newcastle game, and. If you don't, then you have to be willing to sit there and take the questions. Like It's an utterly pathetic yeah. thing to storm out of that press conference, right? Yeah, and I think look, Stoke are in a really weird place now where 
they're, they're, it's a fascinating squad just because they've it's like they've tried to do this revolution of former Barcelona and Bayern Munich mm-hmm. players like build this skyscraper and they've got halfway up and just thought sod it and thrown a bit of top all in over the top and they've they've got all these Tony Pulis relics they've got the kind of long ball players as well so you end up with this weird situation where a guy like Jordan Shakuri cuts in off the wing looks up at who's across to and he's got Peter Crouch and he's got Hesse in there and it's like a six foot seven guy and a guy who wants like a whip ball across and there's no middle ground and it's just such an odd unbalanced squad I don't quite know which side of that coin Mark Hughes prefers so I just yeah it's just a, an odd one and I, and I feel like if Hughes does go you could go either way. You could. Who, who do you bring in? I don't know. Which which way do you go with that squad now? Well, that seems to be the issue, Jack. Is that the two guys they're most keen on? I think are Dyche and Wagner, who, by all accounts, just wouldn't come in mid-season. You know, they've got things that they want. I mean, obviously Burnley looks safe, but Dyche wants to see out the season with, with them at least before considering doing anything else. And David Wagner, I think, would be impossible to get out of Huddersfield right now. Yeah, and Dyche and Wagner plays very different football, so. It's always funny when teams come up with shortlists of managers with completely different philosophies. It makes you think, well, what do you actually want from your manager? Or you just want someone who's kind of flavour of the month? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right. It is a mess that clearly Hughes has lost his ability to to motivate those players. They've looked like they're weird. Like it's insane. Like they look like they've been on the they look like they're on the beach, and yet they've got twenty points. They're not even halfway there. Well, they're two points clear of relegation, and you know, slipping down towards it. They do look like a team. And, and this is the issue with all of the, the, the classic firefighters have already gone, basically. Mm. So if they keep sliding, then who do you bring in? Yeah, well, that's the thing is that they don't... If there are no firefighters... I mean, there's no point in getting rid of Hughes for a fire... You know, unless they can get someone to save their season now. I think they're probably best off sticking with Hughes, hoping they stay up. But I think they probably would, just because of the quality of players that they've got. But then starting afresh with someone for next season who can give them a bit of a relaunch and a new idea. Because at the moment, there is, as Lawrence was saying, they're a team who doesn't seem to have any kind of any kind of coherent idea behind what they're doing. It does feel like that. And speaking of teams with no coherent idea of what they're doing, Swansea. Uh, Miguel is overseas. Um, that's why he's not here today. He's in Wales for Swansea versus Tottenham tonight. Swansea have had a curious break since we last recorded. They sacked Paul Clement, replaced him with... Um, Carlos Carvajal from uh, Sheffield Wednesday did an okay job first couple of seasons got into the playoffs was sacked um, a couple of weeks ago and now walks into a Premier League job his first ever Premier League job in fact Hugh Jenkins gave an interview Hugh Jenkins is the chairman of Swansea for those that don't know gave a very peculiar interview to to Wales Online and a couple of other outlets uh, where his recollection of of the American takeover seems very different to what a lot of people uh, would understand as reality. So, what do we make of Swansea? The bottom of the table, they're three points from safety right now. They had a little revival, got a win um, yesterday, was that? Yeah, New Year's Day. But this doesn't look like a club that's necessarily kicking its hardest to survive. Yeah, you've always got to be a bit... It always makes you think twice when you see that a priority for a team was to get a manager who they could get for free. Mm-hmm. It was the same when West Ham got David Moyes. Like they got David, they got David Moyes because he was free and they didn't want to pay for anyone else. Similarly, at the start of Swansea's process, Swansea were quite open. They wanted someone who was immediately available, um, you know, which of course Carvalho was by virtue of being, yeah. by virtue of leaving Sheffield Wednesday. But you think, well, this is such an important appointment. If you're not going, to, if you're not willing to spend two or three million pounds on this, then. Um, what does that say about your priorities? That said, I do think that Carvalho is a good appointment. Um, 
because he's you know he's charismatic he speaks good english he's already i mean i was at his first game where they were kind of rubbish in the first half but then turned it on the second half nicked two goals right at the very end and beat Watford 2-1 and now and you know that moved them above West Brom and all of a sudden you're thinking well it's only a two-point gap to make up the big problem they've got is the squad which is a complete mess yeah after one of the worst summers of transfer dealing I can remember by any Premier League team losing Jack their three best players Urente, Sigurdsson and Cork and replacing them with you know some players who aren't up to it and some kids on loan um as as we were saying earlier, the Americans are not going to put in ex- any extra money for January. Certainly I think there's a bit way. of money there left over from uh, the Sigurdsson and Urente deals. Uh, they will have to buy well because, I mean, even the, the, even the players they've got, I don't think are good enough. If you compare them to like the firepower that, say, West Ham have got, who are in a similar situation. West, Ham's, West Ham have bought badly enough over the years, but West Ham's squad is far better than Swansea's squad. Um, similarly, you know, Crystal Palace's squad is far, far better than Swansea's. Think of those two squads, I mean, t- to really go off topic, West Ham and Palace, they could put out a very good first eleven, I think. But the Palace squad is so thin after two, three consecutive windows, basically, of constant thinning because it gets to the point where you're kind of at the, the limit for financial fair play. And it's where do you want to put your money? And it's like, and if, when you start playing, paying these players, Benteke, 130 grand a week, Zaha, 100 plus grand a week, all this, and Kabai is on a similar sort of amount. So, then it's like, okay, we have to start thinning out to the point that Palace don't have a senior striker on the bench for any of these games. They're playing Bakri Sacco, who is effectively a championship standard winger, um, as their backup striker. They don't have high-grade backups. And I'm looking at West Ham the other day, and I kind of feel the same, and, and Newcastle are a bit like that. Um, but West Ham do at least, West Ham and Palace do have match winners in their yeah, team. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with that. And they have yeah. more Premier League experience, whereas the other day, Swansea had, they started off with Tammy Abraham, up front with uh, Jordan Ayew. Abraham did nothing at all, got hooked after an hour. Uh, Oliver McBurney came on, who's actually much better, because at least he put himself about. He yeah, made things yeah, difficult yeah. for the Watford defenders. Um, Luciano Narsing, who's a player basically sunk without trace since they got him, he made a big difference when he came on in the second half. And then they threw on Nathan Dyer at the end, who helped set up the second goal. So in terms of like poverty of options, yeah, it's no, it, it worse than Swansea, it's with bleak. the possible exception of Huddersfield and Brighton. Um, they beat Watford, obviously, who uh, are next in the Festive League table. They uh, played three, won one, lost two. Their slide continues. They are 10th in the actual league table. Um, but they're still seven points clear of relegation. I think Watford will be fine. Marco Silva, um, probably for his own benefit, needs to kind of revive that team a little bit. But Watford don't look like a team who are going to be properly dragged into it, do they? I don't know. I get a bit of a bad vibe about some of their recent performances. Like, I don't... It's not; they're not playing well. They, whenever they can see the goal, everything goes wrong. I don't think they're very resilient as a team. Um, they're kind of lacking. I mean, Richarlison has been fantastic, but then they are lacking up front. Like Deeney is all over the place, and he's just got this four-game ban mm. for that ludicrous foul. Andre Gray tries hard but doesn't score goals. They had to. They hauled back in Stefan, Stefano Akaka for the game, for the Swansea game, for his first start since opening day, and you know he actually made the first goal, but he's not like. I mean, he's not. There's a reason that he hasn't been playing all season. Yeah, he's not good at football. Um, and so I kind of like they're missing Chalaber as well in midfield, who's got a broken knee and won't be back until February. And I don't know. I just think there's a bit of a lack of um, lack of presence, lack of goals. Certainly, a bit of incision apart from Richarlison. Um And that's what. And I do kind of feel like 
you know, the the sort of good force they had at the start of the season has dissipated a bit. They've had, what, five red cards this season? Mm. Yeah, but ill discipline team. I mean, they have lost four of the last five, which is worrying. Uh, but they got one win over the festive period, which puts them above this bottom seven. So there are seven teams that didn't even win a single game over mm. the festive period, which is a concern. Huddersfield at least got three draws, so they've got some points out of it. Huddersfield, Palace, West Brom, who have apparently lodged an official complaint to the Premier League over fixture congestion. Southampton, Everton, Burnley, and at the bottom, West Ham. However, West Ham have only played two games. As I said, them and Tottenham, just the two games over the festive period, and then they play like two in two days or three days. So from that bottom, I think we've covered Palace a fair amount. Huddersfield have got three draws. That keeps them in good shape, actually. They're in 11th place and, what, six points clear? So we still like Huddersfield. I mean, I know you were very impressed with with David Wagner's boys when you went to see them. Yeah, I mean, I I think they will. I mean, I don't know. I think it's going to be basically a coin flip whether they stay up or not. I think it's an achievement even to be that close because they, I mean, despite what we were saying about Swansea a second ago, Huddersfield do clearly have the worst squad in the division. Like yeah. the squad is terrible. Uh, and they basically yet, need probably like fourteen points, I think, from the next. 16 games to survive which isn't that many it, it really isn't that many like four wins probably over the rest of the season yeah. would probably do them yeah. um, but I agree it would be an incredible achievement if he does you know Huddersfield Town staying in the Premier League w- would be big um, have you seen much of West Brom recently either of you? I think you should be pretty worried about West Brom right since they brought, well, Pard, in, doesn't they brought in Alan Pardew to give basically hoping that he could maintain that sort of Pulis solidity but then get them to play more football and score more goals He's been there seven games. They've scored three goals, one of which was that lucky penalty against Arsenal the other night. Yeah. They've only got four points in those seven games. Like they're all like their performances. Sorry, the results under Pardew alone are relegation standard. Um, and you, I don't know. I, I look at the squad and you think there's just no goals in that team. That point at Arsenal as well, which is obviously a really useful point. They played terribly in that first half. They were, people complained about how defensive Newcastle and unambitious Newcastle were against Manchester City the other day. Yeah. West Brom were arguably even less ambitious. And, and you talked about how Palace could kind of sit in, but they also had that ability to, to break and, and the pace that they've got. They can, they can be deep, but can also attack at the same time. West Brom don't have that ability. And unless they buy players in January, then they're, they're not going to have it. With they, have to, they, ha- they definitely need more options up front. Like, there's a lot of teams down there, whether it's, you know, sort of look at West Ham, I think they'll probably be okay because they've got experience and they've got enough match winners. And even like Brighton, I think are well-organized enough. But for West Brom, I can't see what the argument is for why they will stay up. Like I don't, I don't see what they've got in the kind of plus column. I think uh, knowing Pardew, it's going to be one where he insists they go out and buy players. So it will probably be on the strength of who they can bring in, mm. which is difficult when you're second bottom, second bottom of the table, level on points with with bottom team Swansea. So I. Having seen his last year at Palace where they were desperate, really, um, and he gradually eroded the defensive solidity that had come before, um, and his basic thing was, you know, he, he liked to think that he made this really free-flowing football and a great attack, which was a little bit of a myth, because basically, if you've got someone like Wilfred Zaha, they're going to create things that look great, mm. but that's no product, really, of, of of the manager or coaching. A lot of that is just if the player finds himself in one-on-one situations. And Zaha was given unlimited freedom to do that. Who would you do that to at West Brom? Like Salomon Rondon is a very talented player, but he is not the sort of player who you're just going to give him the ball and he'll create something. Um, 
I'm trying to think. Like, I'd, I'd who hazard, do they have? I'd hazard a guess at them. Most assists. James McLean. I like Matt Phillips. Yeah. And and McLean is is good because he's so diligent, but he's not mm. necessarily the, like a game breaking talent. Oliver Burke's a good player, but he's just really young and hasn't done anything yet. So I do worry about West Brom. They've only taken two points over the festive period, uh, as of Southampton, as of Everton, as of Burnley. Burnley are a bit of a slip. Uh, they're out the Champions League picture now, <laughs> but you know it's still going to be a great season for them. We think Everton. That's a team who. We thought they'd had a bit of a recovery, but you know, two points from four games over this period is difficult. And they, you know, they could have a tough situation where they lose to Liverpool on Friday night, and the honeymoon period underneath Sam Allardyce is probably over, right? Yeah, they're clearly like the benefit. I wonder if the benefits, the short-term benefits they had from Allardyce's arrival, have worn off, and now we're looking at the kind of longer-term issues which they've suffered from you know, under Koeman, which is unbalanced squad, years of bad buying, like really, really bad buying, um, not just this summer either, but but, but before, um, and a general lack of confidence around the place. I mean, I'm sure, I think they will probably be okay because they've got Sam and they've got a handful of good players, but I'm not, you know, I mean, Sam is not going to turn them into a sort of seventh, eighth place team overnight, is he? Southampton are on 20 points, which is just two points above relegation. They're not safe by any stretch, are they? No, that's why Manchester United drawing at home with Southampton was such a bad result, because Saints had been terrible before then. They got taken to the absolute cleaners at Wembley mm-hmm. by Tottenham on Boxing Day. The uh, absolute cleaners as opposed yeah. to just the regular cleaners. Yeah, quite. Uh, it's a better service. And on the, I was there at St Mary's on the 23rd where they drew one all with Huddersfield, where they were really poor, uh, didn't really create anything. Um, the problem is with Saints is that like they... They got rid of Puel li- literally because he was boring yeah. and couldn't engage the fans and players. Uh, they replaced him with Pellegrino, who is a great bloke and very popular. He's kind of popular with the players because I think he's a nice guy, but I don't know. I mean, it's, the results aren't there yet. Well, if they looked at his Alaves team, they would have known that the football is not going to be dr- like drastically different to Claude Puel's football. You can tell from watching Saints play, and I've seen them a fair bit this year, is that this is a manager who learnt the ropes working with Rafa Benitez. Mm-hmm. Like They're very focused on defensive shape. They try and do everything as a team. There's not really much scope there for individual cre- creativity. And sometimes it works because sometimes they can defend well. You know, They nearly got a point at City. But they don't... Some more recently, they, I mean, at Spurs, for example, they lost that, and then when you lose that, you, they've lost everything because they're not, they've never really been that good going forward, and they don't have any good strikers. Well, I, I do half wonder because obviously there was a, a softening of the stance over Van Dyke, and you do wonder if Pellegrino has got his eyes on a few people with that money because mm. if they're not even being so, like defensively solid, you might as well sell the guy, bring in four or five players from wherever, and, and see what you can do. And I think they prepared for that in the summer they bought in Wesley Hoot for mm-hmm. I think 15 16 million um Bed, Bed, Bedena, Bedenak is it his name I think who hasn't even played yet another center back um so I think they've kind of prepared for that and I think Hoot and Yoshida will be the main partnership for the rest of the season um and then that money's free to to spend on attacking players now which is what they really need to do I think broadly speaking they I mean they've got enough talent I think in the squad but it will be one of those where if they go on a slide, I'm I'm not sure how they turn it round, because the team is built on not conceding goals. And if and if they can't stop conceding, then they're going to be in trouble. Um, but that pretty much, in fact, that is the entire festive league table sorted out. Congratulations, Liverpool, on your first Premier League title. Um, Man City obviously still lead the real table. 
Uh, and as we've discussed, West Ham, West Brom and Swansea at the bottom. Jack, over the next couple of days, you've got three games in three days. You would like to give us a quick one-sentence preview of each game? So tonight, West Ham against West Brom, which is a kind of cla- clash of the competing new manager, the fading new manager bounces of both Moyes and Pardew. Moyes did at least have a bit of a bounce, whereas Pardew had none at all. I think West Ham are going to win, uh, not least because West Brom's... West Brom have been very unlucky with the fixture calendar. Uh, and tomorrow... They've Ars- won two of 21 games this season. Yeah. Tomorrow, Arsenal-Chelsea, um, where I think Arsenal are going to struggle. They've got injuries. Ozil has been their best player recently. It looks like he's out. Uh, I think Chelsea will be solid and then Nick won. And then on Thursday, I'm at Tottenham against West Ham. Uh, Tottenham are playing really well at the moment. They've won, I think they've won five out of their last six in the Premier League. And the one they lost was Man City away, uh, which is whatever the opposite of a gimme is. Um, And so, I mean, obviously they are playing at Swansea tonight. So Pochettino will have to rest and rotate a few. But I think if they bring anything like their A game against West Ham, they should be fine. Well, that couldn't have been a better preview. And uh, the other game, I guess, to look forward to Friday night, we've got Liverpool-Everton and Manchester United versus Derby County. That's FA Cup third round. Uh, your Magic of the Cup game is Nottingham Forest versus Arsenal this weekend. Yeah. Um, if you had to pick a, a surprise anywhere in the FA Cup, where would you go? Commentary City against Stoke City. Yeah, I like that. I think um, that's going to be played out in front of a pretty much empty ground, right? But we sold about 7,000 tickets. Yeah. Um and I think Wimbledon will beat Tottenham. So I guess that's about all we have time for. Next week, uh, a proper transfer window preview. Uh, Miguel promises us he'll be back in the country. So I'd like to thank Lawrence for coming in early today. You're welcome. I'd like to thank Jack for coming in from his sofa today. Thanks. Uh, No, thank you, thank you. Uh, Producer Matt, thank you for your brief but very important interlude in today's episode. Thank you to our friends at Acast, Apple, etc. for... uh, hosting the podcast if you remember to subscribe or say rate and review preferably five stars Uh, and that's about it I've been Ed Malley and this has been the Indie Football Podcast and we'll see you next week Mm